Welcome to the Pacific Point Church Podcast, where we're learning to love and live like Jesus. During this half hour, we're praying that God will direct, encourage, and speak to you. If you would like to partner with Pacific Point Church and our church plants, you can download the Pacific Point Church app at the App Store or visit us at pacificpointchurch.com slash give. At that same site, you can also watch and listen to previous sermons, read follow-up blog posts and extended notes, and even connect with Pacific Point Church on social media. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Okay, that's it. Okay, so, and we do have a very special birthday that we're going to be celebrating, but we're going to do that toward the end, so I'm so excited about that. Um, okay, so John Blue is out of town. He's seeing Hudson in Washington um, for hockey games this weekend, and we have a special guest. So, Chris, you want to come on up? We are so excited. Many of you will... Um, we know Chris. We know Chris and Meryl Venan. They're um, They've been church friends with us forever and ever. We, they're dear friends to us personally. We love them. Um, Chris is a powerful teacher. He is a man of God. He loves Jesus. He is who he is when he's out there um, that you see up here. That's probably the greatest thing to say about him. And um, I, we, I, you have other things that we'll, I don't know if we're talking about that now or later, but anyway, they pastor Genesis and Sam's here with them and just really, really lovely people. We love them so much and so excited to glean from you this morning. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. The first thing I have to say is, you know how disarming it is having a mirror on the side, you know? And it's not even my best side properly, you know? It should be somewhere else that can really show it. Secondly, just well done and fabulous to be here. I'll comment more on that in a moment. And now this is the embarrassing moment. I left my glasses at home. Does anyone have a 2.0 that I can just read my Bible with? My notes on my computer are large enough. Oh, thank you. I'm in touch with my feminine side. I'm good with that. <laughs> Meryl, please, love. Meryl, please remain dignified and uh, love Jesus, love his church, love your husband. No, please don't put it on Instagram. I have my dignity to uphold. So it is absolutely wonderful to be here. Honestly, I am so, so honored. When John asked me if I could come, and uh, I don't feel like I'm a guest preacher, just to be honest with you. I don't really do guest preaching. I generally agree to go into churches for whom Meryl and I have a deep love and affection, for whom there's either a newer or a more historical relationship, and we believe deeply in the journey that you're on. And so the privilege of being here with you, the privilege of being in the new building and the new space is a huge, huge honor for me. And I hope this morning the Lord will really minister to you, kind of reach into your heart a little bit and stir the passions of your soul. And um, Jesus is magnificent. Like many of you, I came to faith a long, long time ago, 1976. So it's 45 years that I've walked with Jesus and I can say with all integrity, I love him more today than I did then. Th that was a kind of selfish love, you know, like when you're dating in uh, middle school or high school or something, and uh, you kind of, it's all selfish. It's, look, look, look who I'm dating. Uh, but then 41 years of marriage later, it's, you realize it's actually not about you whatsoever. It's all about the other person. And I just want to say I love him. I love his church. Uh, of course, the church has hurt us as we have hurt her. But that will still be the spectacular climax at the end of the age. 
when he comes to gather to himself those who have got his mark. We spend way too much time talking about the mark of the beast. We spend way too little talking about the mark of Christ. I want that mark of Christ on my forehead and on my wrist. I want it to be so glaringly evident, like a neon light in the dark, that when he comes, he goes, oh, yes, of course, it's you. Like, what? Oh, gee, is Chris one of us? Or is, um, I'm not that sure. Oh, no, no, I, I want that neon light to radiate even now in his incredible love for him, for his church, and for his scriptures. So uh, I hope I can do justice to it this morning. I am delighted Meryl's here with me. We have had a fabulous Jesus journey for many, many years. And Sam, who is kind of, I don't know if it's a man Friday or woman Friday or Friday or something, but she is just a vital, vital cog in our Genesis story. And for some of you, thank you so much for letting your kids come and hang with us. Uh, we really do appreciate that massively. All right, grab your Bibles. If you don't mind, we're going to dive straight in. I'm even going to put my clock on so that I don't abuse your time and kindness. Um, I want to thank you, Pacific Point, for standing. I think you know that churches have, during this, the, the, the brutality of the last two years, many are not standing. Many have closed down or have shrunk to a, a tiny little percentage of what they were just two years ago. And I want to commend you. I want to compliment you. I want to applaud you for a job well done. As we go through this little story of mine this morning, I think you will realize what we are coming out of and what the new normal will look like. But I want to commend you and compliment you because this is not necessarily the norm. Meryl and I have the privilege. I head up a global church planting network. Uh, well, global sounds very fancy. We're in about 15 countries. And as I've watched how difficult it's been for the different churches and different spaces from very rural settings like Sri Lanka and India and Zimbabwe to more sophisticated, elegant spaces in Toronto or London, there's been a similar journey. It's almost been as if, on the one hand, God has shaken the heavens and the earth, and we love prophesying that. It's the living that's really difficult. And on the other hand, the enemy has come in like a hyena, foraging for the bits and pieces that he can gather. And the fact that you're here and the fact that you're standing is to be highly, highly complimented. But at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? That's at the end of the day what matters. Not my political opinion, my angle, whether I'm far right, center right, center, center left, far. None of that matters in the context of eternity. One of the best things that happened to me is I moved from another country. And you realize the deep soul ties attached to patriotism isn't nearly as important as is the patriotism for the great patriarch Jesus and his Father, and the Holy Spirit. That really, at the end of the day, is what matters. What if God calls you to Thailand tomorrow? What if? What if God calls your kids to go and serve him in Cambodia? Do you really think being an American, and I'm a proud American, I'm an accidental American, but a proud one nevertheless, and my son who is born here tells me with great joy that he can be a president, the president of this nation, I cannot. That's his great moment of pride. Um, but, but Jesus is the central conversation piece that we must always have. One of the tragedies when the great divorce took place, when the Catholics and the Protestants split in the 16th century, was that we Protestants, 
know very little about some of the beautiful saints who are Catholic. And I'm not talking about those with the little halos on in church buildings. I'm talking about men and women who have loved Jesus passionately throughout the ages. Recently, I stumbled across a story of a woman called Dorothy Day. How many of you have heard of her? Okay. Basically, her story, as I recall, was that she was born to a journalist father in San Francisco in the turn of the century, 1897, 1898, somewhere in that vicinity. Her family lost everything with the great San Francisco earthquake. And the dad moved back to the East Coast, and she grew up in a truly bohemian lifestyle in New York. She did everything you could imagine that comes with that word. She had an abortion. She lived with lovers. She got married. She got divorced. She was imprisoned a number of times. The mafia said they loved drinking with her because she drank them under the table. And uh, she, she was a, a poet and um, uh, huge for women's rights and, and the vote and lived this incredibly exotic life. But at the end of her life, she said this, I try to think back. I try to remember this life the Lord gave me. The other day I wrote down the words, a life remembered, and I was going to try to make a summary for myself, write about what mattered most, but I couldn't do it, she said. I just sat there and thought of our Lord and his visit to us all these centuries ago, and I said to myself that my great luck was to have him on my mind for so long in my life. She was living with a man she loved dearly and would for the rest of her life. And some of her greatest and most impassioned literature were letters she sent him about how much she missed him and how she longed to be in his arms. But she came into a beautiful risen encounter with Christ, or with Christ the risen Savior. And it transformed her life from a life of pure selfishness and self-preoccupation and narcissism. She began one house for women who were coming out of prison, women who were coming off the street, women who were homeless, unhoused, women who were prostitutes, and she started a home for them, one house in New York. Such was the power of her conversion that it radically transformed her life. If you read the account, I've read one of her bi uh, biographies, and she was an introvert, and she said, every single day I woke up with the trauma of knowing as an introvert, I will spend my day with others. As a narcissist, she realized that she would eat every meal with others who would cuss her out, who had hangovers, who wanted to be back on the street, who wanted their drugs. And there was not money as a bohemian who lived a good life with wealthy people. She was now eating at times bread and water. That's all she could afford in her house. By the time she died, I think there were 30 of these houses around the United States. And now they are global. When she reflected on her life, wouldn't it have been interesting, as I did and read her biography, to find out everything she had done, the curiosity of what was she like as a sinner, and then the gratitude, what was she like as a saint, a Jesus lover. And she sits at the end of her life and she says, actually... All that I have to write is about how amazing he is. That I've had the luck, she says, of having him on my mind for such a long time. And many a times I've thought through that quote or thought through that story and thought, what would I write 
if I come to the end of my life, would it be, oh, such gratitude that I've thought about him all this time of my life. Now, this has been a brutal time, and I'm a history graduate, a history lover, and I was curious one day, and I thought, what was it like living in times of persecution? And then I started drawing, doodling as we do sometimes, and compared it to this time of the pandemic. Persecution and pandemic. And I realized that there were probably 10 things that looked incredibly similar. During times of persecution, the people scattered. Chrissy, you can have your glasses back. I'll get to the scriptures in a bit. People are scattered, aren't they? Acts 8. And the people were scattered throughout the region. That's what happened. Many people up and moved. The great California exodus to Idaho and to uh, Nashville and to who knows where. The fact that during a persecution, you're not able to gather. During the pandemic, we were not able to gather. There was the possibility of death in the persecution, as we sadly heard this morning in the pandemic also. There was a deep sense of loneliness. Meryl's a marriage and family therapist. And she will tell you about the deep sense of loneliness and disconnectedness. We were doing our online church, and we really sucked at it. We were not good at it at all. And people enjoyed listening or watching people like John Mark Comer or John Tyson way more than us, and I don't even blame them. But one day, Meryl and I were sitting having dinner, and there was a knock on the door, and one of the young gals in our church walked in in her scrubs, and she has got kind of a delightful little attitude, and she put her hands on her hips, and she said, Chris, I can't do this anymore. I, I can't. I can't just look at a screen, because there's nothing about the way we build that validates an online presence. We're about people and eyes and hearts and hands and doing life together and honesty and transparency and real people on a real Jesus journey in a real world with all of the obstacles and challenges that that brings. And I said to her, I get it. And we started meeting in a parking lot, and that was a story in and of itself. Firstly, the trauma of mental health. Can you imagine the trauma of mental health? I'm watching with interest how the, the Afghans and the um, Syrian refugees are coming, and, and from, from Haiti. The, the incredible trauma, the mental health trauma that has come, as, has, as have we. Sixthly, fear and anxiety heightened, where the language and the vocabulary is more fear and anxiety than faith and conviction. And I don't blame you. These are very real challenges. When we went to South Africa in October, every person we knew, every person we spoke to, a family member or a friend had died. The idea that this was just kind of a, a, a flu on a little bit of steroids was not true for South Africans. Everyone had a family member or friend who had died because of COVID and not because they were old. 42-year-old with three kids. Super fit. Fear and anxiety heightened. Seventhly, the deconstruction of the church and, the, and that of faith. Oh, my word, has that been prolific. Eighthly, deeply divisive. Can I ask you, dear, dear friends, I don't have no idea where you are politically, socially, or economically. But you know that Christians are the great unifiers. We're men and women of conviction. 
But Ephesians 4 tells us that we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when brothers and sisters are the architects of division and hatred and anger and resentment, we are not partnering with God. We're not partnering with the Holy Spirit. I don't know who we are partnering with. I know that's... <gasps> Take your gloves off. It's not a time for divisiveness. It's a time for peace. We are the dispensers of grace and peace in a hurting broken, antagonistic world out there. Number nine, economic fragility. You know that better than I. And number 10, the loss of trust, especially about leadership. Now, isn't that amazing? I could, I could talk about persecution in the church through the ages, and I would probably use those 10 ingredients. I could talk about the pandemic, and they certainly are true. So I just did a little bit of homework. I thought, what are the books that most preachers are preaching about? And two books came to the fore immediately. One, the book of Hebrews, and the other, one, Peter. Interestingly enough, both of them write about the people of God scattered in the exile, the trauma of persecution, exactly like we are having right now. And so I thought, well, why is that the case? And so uh, what I want to do with you this morning very quickly is front-end, back-end Hebrews, because I think it gives us this little cameo, almost Kodak moment. Remember those old Kodak cameras, and uh, Urban Outfitters still have them from time to time? Just like, single image, front-end and back-end, that will help us make sense of this incredibly crazy time. Tim Mackey says, of the Bible project, he said, the book of Hebrews is about two things, the superiority of Jesus on the one hand, and an appeal to remain faithful, steadfast, and resilient. The centrality and the supremacy of Jesus, it's almost audacious, above every other name, Jesus. And then the appeal to remain faithful, steadfast, and resilient. Okay. Let's start front end. Are you with me? You get where I'm going? Front end, back end, Hebrews. It's a beautiful book, 13 chapters. In every chapter, Jesus is described, except chapter exactly 11. The great faith chapter. It's the only one where his name does not appear. All of the other 12, he is front and center. It's almost like the author, and, and, and someone argued it actually was Priscilla. It was a woman who wrote this book. But I can see that, and I'm not fighting here, but I, the, the image I have is a mother pleading with this community in exile, calling them to a higher life in spite of the great suffering and pain. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Hebrews 2 verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not, church, drift away. We must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away, just as has happened through the pandemic. For since the message spoken through the angels was biding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such an exquisite salvation? If we ignore such a compelling Jesus? 
So I drilled down on that passage just a little bit. Now, what becomes evident is that the author is not saying, I want you to pay attention. I was a school teacher. Back in the day in South Africa, I taught at a, a school, kind of a pretty fancy school. You know, the guys wore blazers and ties and white shirts and very, very prestigious school of about a thousand boys. And in my sophomore class, I had a Matt Alexander. Matt was a phenomenal rugby player and a great surfer. And ladies, he was really good looking. And he knew it. But he was not at all academically interested. In fact, he wasn't even curious. He would sit outside. Uh, he would sit looking outside at wondering what the wind was doing and what the surf conditions were. But I loved Matt. And I desperately wanted him to get through, and I did everything to the point of cheating. So I would stand at his desk, and the kids would immediately say, Sir, 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 what are we going to have in the test? And I would stand at his desk, and I would say to him, I want you to pay attention to chapters 5 and 7. See, what was I trying to do? I was trying to get him to pass the test, succeed the grade. But, but the author doesn't just say, I want you to pay attention. He says, I want you to pay careful attention. Well, that my mind went to when I was an, I was an infantry officer in the South African army. And, and when you come into boot camp, what they do is they tell you is that this is for your nation and for your freedom. Any soldier will tell you it's for neither. Because ultimately, when the bullets are flying and you are running into combat, it's all about your buddy on either side of you because they will keep you safe. And you will keep them safe. And the memories you make, like Band of Brothers, and the, the yearly regrouping of the same men who had fought in dastardly circumstances together was not because they were waving American or South African flags, but because they had fought alongside each other and kept each other safe. So not only was it more, the author was saying, than pay attention, school teacher, pay careful attention, the drill sergeant saying, you have to understand, put, be able to put your weapon apart in the dark without seeing and put it back together again. Because when it's night and the bullets are flowing and your, 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 your weapon's jammed, you've got to be able to, in the trench, you've got to be able to take it apart, put it back together and cock it and keep fighting. So it's not pay attention, that's the school teacher. It's not pay careful attention, that's the drill sergeant. She or he writes, pay more careful attention lest we drift away. This is a third level depth. Now, the best story I have was my son was three years old. We lived in Diamond Bar, was leading Southlands Church back in the day. And uh, I was a Wednesday morning. I was prepping for Sunday and had to nip out to an elders meeting. My in-laws were out from South Africa. And um, fabulous, fabulous. Meryl's parents are just amazing. And uh, I was working on my desk, and my boy was outside of my window. His toys were on the patio, rocking chair, rocking horse and the rest. I'm in the elders' meeting for maybe an hour and a half. And I get a text message from my mother-in-law, Chris, I think you should come home. Now, I'm in the middle of an elders' meeting. She would not do that to me. The next thing that pops on my text message is a rattlesnake that's curled up amongst my boy's toys. Well, how many of you know that's a game-changing moment right there? He's having his nap. 
I do what every Christian should do. I find the elder who had killed snakes, and I commission him on assignment to come with me. See, I'm, 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 my mama raised no fool here. And Jay had been a missionary in Africa and had killed tons of snakes. And I know it's probably not the cool thing to do, but I was looking for a snake killer. Why? Because my three-year-old boy was there. So we go up, we corner the snake, Jay kills it. I, I, was, I, I really was a great manager of the moment. I, I told him what to do. I did not. I was absolutely petrified. And he killed this big rattlesnake. So the point of the story, I haven't got to the point yet. The point is Tian wakes up from his nap. We've just cleaned up the blood. Mama Bear gets on her knees in front of her boy. And what does she do? She does what this author is doing. Cups his face in her hands. And, he, and she says, T, what do you do if you see a snake? His obvious three-year-old answer is, I scream and I run like crazy. And she says, no, 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 T, that's not what you do. She says, when you see a snake, you stand still. Incidentally, my sister and her husband were game rangers in South Africa, and that actually happened. She went into one of the huts to check. It came out, and there was a cobra between her and her daughter. But she had taught her daughter, when I say stand, you stand. And Shay was about two years old, three years old maybe. Little bitty thing stood with this cobra. And then it went down and slithered away. And so Meryl says, T, what do you do? Sorry, this is what you do. I said, you stand still. And you walk back slowly. And when you've walked back far enough, you call for mommy. Have you got it? Yes, he said. What do you do, Tian, when you see a snake? He said, I scream and run away as fast as I can. <laughs> I guess he didn't got it. But do but you hear what I'm saying? This is now, how can I pass the test? Pay attention. How can I be in community with my buddies? Pay careful attention. This is a life or death thing. I want you to pay more careful attention so that you do not drift away. In this exquisite book, ladies and gentlemen, I think about 12 times or something, the author uses the plurality of community, let us. The idea of a Western Christianity, which is about me, my faith, my worship, my time, my money, was so foreign to this community, even in the dastardly times they lived in. Let us not forsake the gathering of the brethren, he or she writes, as is the case of some. Let us not. And I want to say front end, as we emerge out of COVID into whatever the COVID normal looks like, may God grant us the grace not just to pay attention so I can pass the test. Not just pay careful attention so that I can protect my body. But pay more careful attention that I do not die in drifting into isolated pseudo-Christianity. Do you wonder how many Christians are not in community right now in Southern California? And I'm not talking about filling out buildings. I'm talking about living in community that I know when the bullets start flying, I've got a buddy on this side of me, and I've got a buddy on this side of me, and they are covering me. And if I take a hit, 
They will leopard crawl to me and drag me back into safety. All those who are saying, I've got community. I serve for the same bunch of mates every Sunday morning. That is not community. Community is when we worship together, when we're vulnerable with each other, when we're transparent with each other, when we're on our knees pounding at the throne of grace together, when we open up the scriptures and the scriptures enlighten us and stir us and strengthen us. That, dear friends, is a little picture of what this looks like. Capish, Okay. Lest we drift away, lest we deconstruct our faith, lest we drift from community, lest we lose our callings. That's too expensive. It's too expensive to just drift away from my calling as if, well, you know, I, I, I bought a jacket at um, Seed. I bought a Patagonia jacket. No, I don't like the jacket. I'm going to get another one. We don't get another calling. We get one by divine design and for the intention of eternity. It's too costly to do all that. Okay, enough said. What about the back end? Well, in the back end, there are three moments, I think I'll only do two of them, where the writer climaxes with Jesus. It's the high point. It's a bit like Vivaldi's Four Seasons. You with me? Builds up, it builds to a crescendo, and you can feel, and the violinists are going, and you feel the mood of the space, and it's climactically building. And when I read this book, I, I feel like the great composer is writing this piece, and the music starts gently. Be careful. Be careful that you don't drift away. And then it gets stronger and stronger and stronger in this climactic chapter and all the instruments and the drummer is beating his drum and the cellists celloing or whatever they do and the, the, the violinists are violining and, and there's this incredible and the guy's sweating and his hair's going everywhere as he does this. And that is how this chapter ends. With three, but I'm only going to do two of them. High points. The first is this. Verse 7. Chapter 13. Thank you, my love. Verse 7 and 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? Well, I mean, yes, yes, we know what it means intellectually. We, we know what that means. But what does it mean to me? God who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, the psalmist said. Went to the Holocaust Museum in Tel Aviv. The opening line, the word as you walk in, as I remember it, is lest we forget. It says the same way. Let me tell you how it's worked for me recently, and maybe that'll help you understand. Jesus the same yesterday, today, forever is not just a great song we sing or a great liturgy we follow. It's a great truth that we build on. I was 19 years old, I'm guessing. When I climbed into my car back in South Africa, I'd recently come to faith. It was super exciting. I was a long-head college dude. We preached on the streets. We played our music on the streets. We lived in communal 
We lived communally. Jesus was coming back. Everyone knew that. So we lived very simple, uncomplicated lives because he was coming back. He hasn't come back yet, by the way, just in case some of you were a little uncertain. But we thought he was coming back soon. And I remember I was still living with my parents. I, was, I had to do my freshman year twice. They liked me so much. They said, Mr. Vinan, could you come back a second time? We loved having you. And I said, sure. You know, I didn't know I was that popular. So I did it a second time. And uh, I was in this community. And I got in my car one day, probably a 25-minute drive from my parents' home to where we gathered downtown Durban. And I looked, turned my car on, and the gas gauge was on zero, empty. So what did I do? Well, obviously, I got out my credit card and just had some more debt. But no, I didn't have a credit card. But what I did have was faith. So I said, Jesus, I know you want me to be in this gathering. Now, there's no gas in this car. So I'm going to trust you, lest, because you need to provide. See how unhelpful credit cards are? that we replace faith initiatives with credit. We don't trust God for an air ticket. Well, I'm going to go on mission, so I'll put on my credit card. Well, what about pausing for a moment and saying, Jesus, would you mind doing this? Would you mind surprising me? So back in the day, it was a cassette player, and I opened the cassette player, put my car into reverse, and I opened my cassette, and there's, I'm going to convert everything to dollars. It's $5. Now, it's 1977. That was a lot of gas. I mean, I'm rejoicing. God, you are amazing. This is going to get me there and back, no problem. See, Jesus is the same yesterday. So what is my $5 challenge today? Four and a half years ago, God speaks to Meryl and I to go and plant a church. Now, Meryl's doing her therapy thing. I'm 57. You shouldn't church plant 57. No one tells John Blue and me. No one tells us that. But the books say, in fact, most church planting organizations will not sponsor you if you're older than 40. So I had no chance whatsoever. So I said, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure you want us to plant again? He says, absolutely. Now, we've got no guaranteed income. We've got no team. We've got no sound go. We have got, we, we've got lots of nothing. Everyone tells me, Chris, you need $50,000 to plant the church. So, well, I'm not in really good shape right now because I don't have anything. So I go to the Lord. I said, Lord, what, 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 what do you want me to do? He says, well, can you trust me? Can the 19-year-old Chris who needed to trust me for $5, can it now be the 57-year-old Chris who can trust me for $50,000? See? God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So... I listened to a few people. They said, Chris, you must fundraise. You must fundraise. It's the American thing to do. And I said, well, I don't know how to fundraise. Again, my name's not John Blue. I'm Chris Vinant, you know. So I go to the richest people I know, and they know me. They know my history. They know my track record. And, and I lay out my plan. And they all say, Chris, that's amazing. We'll pray for you. I'm like, where is the check slapped down on the table, you know? You, you can write out a 50 grand check and, and, and not even miss breakfast, Nada. I go back to the Lord. The Lord said, but I didn't ask you to fundraise. I asked you to trust me. Jesus, the same yesterday. If I could be trusted with $5, can I not be trusted with $50,000? He says, the same. 
So I had to come. Sam was there. I had to come, and I had to say, well, we've got no money, but we're planning a church. And the moment I settled that, within a week, $5,000 came in from a distant source. And I watched our account go to $350,000, and the Lord said, do you believe me now? I'm the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The God who met your need as a poor, as a church mouse. My car was so, sh- so janky. Merrill, it was so rusted through that Merrill could watch the road go past. I mean, in South Africa, they didn't worry about things like that too much. There was no such thing as smog tests. You know, just big balloons of smoke and off we went. See, that's the beautiful and the climactic essence of what this passage is about. The same Jesus who helped you as a new baby believer when you simply threw out your trust, held out your arms, put your hands out, is the same Jesus who's going to do that to you now. Now, is the $5 Jesus kind of, it's fine, I've got it in my pocket here. 50000 oh, sorry, says Jesus, I'm having a really bad month. I can't do that. And I said to the staff, well, that same $5 Jesus, who is the $50 Jesus, will also be the $500,000 Jesus, as Merrill and I bought a home on the east side, not being able to afford it. It should not have been approved. The $5 Jesus is the $50,000 is the $500,000 Jesus. Are you with me? Let me land with this. The writer lands with this incredible passage of Scripture. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, I equip you with everything good for doing His will, and may He work in us what is pleasing according to Him. The Lord Jesus, the great shepherd. Think for a moment with me, dear friends, as we land. I'm sorry, my love. Oh, thanks, it's there. Think for a moment with me, if if, if you don't mind, we're landing. The little Jewish kid grew up having a a meal. These are Hebrews they're writing to. Sitting with his dad and his granddad and his mom and his uncles and his aunts at the Pesach, the Passover, at Yom Kippur, at all of these great celebrations. And we hear the great stories of what God did with Moses and Aaron. And then the exile and Daniel and Jeremiah, they grew up with this notion of God is the good shepherd. So when the author writes in, the author is not just saying, well, this is cute. He is our great shepherd. And remember you learned that at primary school, I mean, at at kids ministry. Remember, Remember that one? No, no, there's something far more sublime. Close your eyes with me for just a second as we land. Because that little kid who's now an adult would read that Jesus is the great shepherd and remember that somewhere read over them from when they were tiny babies was the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. In the trauma and pain of persecution, running, leaving their homes, leaving all their goods, grabbing a few suitcases as they stumble from town to town trying to find an anchor point. And the author says, remember, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. 
He makes me to lie down, says this little Jewish kid, in green pastures. Oh, I'm so stressed. I am so anxious. I am so fearful. I hardly come out of my house, but he leads me besides quiet waters. He looks at the, the, the condition of my soul that's all dried up and all mushed up together, and, and, and it says, He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my darkest hour, when things seem impossible, devastating, and unbearable, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint this head with oil. My cup overflows. And we can hardly say this without wanting to sing it on our tippy toes. Surely goodness and love or mercy shall follow me all, surely goodness, surely love, surely mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you want to know where Chris and Meryl are? We're in the house of the Lord forever. Do you know where we anchor ourselves? In the house of the Lord forever. This is a glorious gospel, dear friends. And in spite of the brutality of the last while, it's one well worth anchoring our soul to once again. I want you to reach into your chairs. There is a little communion package, I believe. Thanks. There we go. Now, can I ask you to be honest for just a moment? And we won't draw this out. We've got a high point happening when I'm done. I don't quite know how to do these things, but I'm sure it's super clever. My love, I need you. I'm going to pretend like I'm really busy, and you do that. Pause for a moment, if you don't mind. Surely, goodness and mercy, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell, I will dwell, as Chrissy read early on, in the house of the Lord. That's where you'll find me, where He is. I want you to take the, the bread. Lord Jesus, on the night that you, was, you were betrayed, you took bread, ordinary bread from right goods. And you said, this is my body. And remember today, Lord, in our brokenness, we are greatly relieved that you are the broken Redeemer who transferred, who took our brokenness and allowed yourself to be broken. Not a sentimental story for Easter, but an historical event for the eons of the ages. You took brokenness, our brokenness upon yourself. Yesterday, this, Jesus the same, yesterday, today, and forever. We eat so that we might be made whole, even in these days. Take eat, dear friends the body of our Lord Jesus Christ.
then he took the cup. And I know it's become a little religious ritual. It wasn't to them. It was a table of friends celebrating a meal together. And he took the ordinary elements. And he said, do this in memory. Every time you have bread and wine, I want you to remember me. Yesterday, Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. We partake now of your blood that was shed for our healing, our cleansing our wholeness. Would you wash us, Jesus? So sorry that our hands are stained by sin. So sorry our eyes have filled our minds with things we wish we hadn't seen. So sorry we've allowed our hearts to become crusty and grumpy and agitated and divisive. Would you, would you let your precious blood in our moment of confession wash us clean? Please drink of the cup.